Have you ever wondered what the world would be like if people really listened to each other? Me too. In a noisy world, how do we focus on listening to the things that matter? Do you feel heard? And are you able to make others feel heard? Join me and guests from around the world as we tackle these important questions and become better listeners along the way. I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and this is Listening on Purpose. Today we have a conversation with the fascinating China Blue. China is an internationally renowned artist in multiple disciplines, focused on exploring the intersection of art, science, and technology. She is the founding director of the Engine Institute, and you can find more about her at chinablueart.com. As a sound artist, she is the curator of many surprising, groundbreaking projects and partnerships. China and I will also touch on the fascinating work of her late husband, neuroscientist Dr. Seth Horowitz, whose work impacted millions. Hi, China. Thanks so much for being with me today. I'm really excited to speak with you. Hey, Timothy. China, in your work as a sound artist, you explore the intersection of art, science, and technology. What is meaningful about that intersection that drew you to dedicate your life to its exploration? Well, as you know, I started out as a visual artist. As a child, I was always doing art, and my family members were doing art at the kitchen table at home. And so as a visual artist, I assumed that my arc would be to, I, I assumed, to become a painter, a sculptor. But as, as an adult, I realized my interest became involved in the evolution of art and how art changes and what triggers that change. Those thoughts kind of evolved into realizing that science and technology are one of the critical components to change in our society. And so as a result, I slowly kind of, with not a particular intent in mind, but I sort of wandered into that direction. I became a, a professional ballet dancer in, in the San Francisco area and also a professional, simultaneously a professional modern dancer. But that whole experience of movement and space and time are sort of the critical components of dance. And that became sort of ingrained into my body and my human experience. And it became a very, very important aspect of living. So fast forward to today or yesterday, or uh, when I started focusing most intently on how I would form my art work, that concentration on space and time became an important component of the work that I do today. And you mentioned also that you do a lot of thinking about the sound and the energy of that. I'd love to hear more of your thoughts about this. This is something that is really interesting about sound is it's, it's present as anything else. Listening or hearing is our, our strongest sense. And, uh, you know, how the surroundings are critical to how 
it's received. And you made an interesting reference in our conversation we had the other day about that and feng shui. I'd love to circle back to that a little bit. Uh, yeah, sure. Starting with this topic of space and time, that became my entry point to, I guess I would call it an investigation. And that kind of dovetailed into my background in feng shui, which is based on the fact that I'm half Chinese. And my interest in Chinese culture directed me towards an interest in investigating feng shui. Feng shui is about making a space or your environment comfortable, healthy, productive. And I'm sort of translating the Chinese terms, which focus on these kinds of components. There are many ways to do this, and one, one way to do this is with sound. For example, sound is used in the form of a wind chime hanging over a door. So when somebody walks through the door, the wind chime is heard, and that alerts people that somebody is entering the room. So in that particular scenario, it's very, very practical. And I realized that sound reflects through space, so it fills a whole room. It reflects off of the various surfaces like a ping pong ball as it bounces through a space off the walls, off the ceiling, off the floor. And that sort of kind of underscored the feng shui aspects of how sound is used as it's put in the Chinese to fill or energize a space. As a um, visual artist and from a sculpting vantage point, the idea of filling a space or filling a cavity with some material, and in this case sound, became very, very seductive for me. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting, I think about this a lot as a, as a conductor, is that the, the space that you're filling is just as much a part of the performance, right? This is why we, we all die to perform in acoustically wonderful concert halls uh, that have been designed to enhance the sound because I'm, you know, I think we've probably all been to performances where the missing link is not the performance that's happening on stage. The missing link is that the room is not bringing it to the, the audience in the way that we want it. So it's always a treat to perform in, in a really great acoustic space because you feel like the work is actually being consumed in the best possible way or being heard in the best possible way. You have done some incredible projects. Again, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the of our conversation that uh, some of this, they were surprising and definitely groundbreaking. And the first one I would like to talk about is that in 2007, you were the very first person to record the Eiffel Tower. So I'm going to start with how in the world did you come up with that idea? And then how does one discover and then secondly, capture the sound, the voice of the Eiffel Tower? It wasn't planned, as a lot of things are in life, and certainly in my life. I was walking down the street on the left bank in Paris with my boyfriend at the time, and I looked up and I saw the Eiffel Tower. And I said, gee, I wonder what it sounds like. <laughs> so only a sound artist talking to somebody who researches sound would understand, you know, that that would be a logical question to ask. Right. <laughs> right. Yes, that's certainly not what most people who see the Eiffel Tower are, are thinking. <laughs> yeah, right. 
we were, you know, we were chuckling and thinking, oh, that's a hilarious kind of idea. And then we got back and I was thinking about this experience and I realized that so many of these kind of whimsical thoughts flip into our minds and then just go disappear into the ether. And I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if I tried to engage in the question. And as a beginning point, I didn't assume that this would ever possibly happen. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, as, as an experiment, let's try and see how far this goes. Send out a couple of emails. Of course, I got no response. So finally, I just picked up the phone. <laughs> And I started out with, excuse me, I'm, I'm sorry, my French is extremely bad, but I'm, I'm calling you because. And within a couple of connections, I was speaking with the right person, and she said, sure. Amazing. I said, really? <laughs> yeah. Are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> Can you confirm that? <laughs> it, okay, so you, so you have permission. And, and let me just put in a little bit of context here that the Eiffel Tower is 7,300 tons of 2.5 million rivets <laughs> and 18,000 some pieces of steel. So that's the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> so, and it goes up how many meters tall? Oh, it's tall. <laughs> yeah. And so you, so you have permission to, to discover and record the voice of the Eiffel Tower. What next? Oh, yeah, that was the next question. I didn't even think that far. I was just thinking, oh, wow, this is an interesting conversation. Uh, <laughs> no plans in hand. Right, sure. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's an emergent strategy. Yeah. <laughs> Good way of putting it. So I sat down with my then boyfriend. I, maybe he had become my husband, Seth, Dr. Seth Horowitz, who is the one I was walking with on the street in Paris. <laughs> I sat down with him and we discussed it. And Dr. Horowitz is uh, somebody we'll speak about a little bit later, but he was my husband who has now passed. And he was a neuroscience professor who studied uh, how the brain processes sound. So we sat down and I, I thought, okay, how do we make this happen? And fortunately was quite versed in technology in, in all the equipment that would be necessary, the mics and the, and the wires and everything that we would need. So uh, we put together a shopping list of everything that we would need and to buy. And the idea was to bring as much equipment as possible to be able to succeed on at least two different levels. One was to actually capture the vibrations of the Eiffel Tower, uh, which is made out of iron, and also to capture the binaural voices that are heard as you walk through. It's the social experience of being there. I was quite interested in making it a two-level recording process. So we put together a pile of equipment and all the things that we could imagine needing shy of a soldering gun. Through airport security. <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't think I could get a soldering gun through <laughs> through the airport, much less for it to be compatible with the electrical system in Paris. <laughs> so I just thought, okay, let's just not, let not worry about that and hope everything goes smoothly. And so you managed to, I assume, get all of the equipment there to Paris. Yes. 
Yes. To the Eiffel Tower. And you, yeah, Seth's book, which is an excellent book, we'll talk about it more later. It's called The Universal Sense. He does a really great telling of the story also. And, and it's, it's awesome because you immediately get his sense of humor in his telling of this story, which is great. And I read there that you took actually microphones that would allow you to capture low frequency yes. infrasound that we don't detect in human hearing. Yes, that's true. That's correct. That's one of the methods of recording that we used quite frequently. We applied their recording devices that are used for in earthquakes to monitor earthquakes. And they capture the low frequency. And what we did was we literally duct taped them to the Eiffel Tower. The French love that, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, they didn't care. You know, they knew the duct tape would come off. But you, you see, when you're at the Eiffel Tower, everywhere there are signs that says, do not climb on the Eiffel Tower. Now, on the first morning of the first day that we arrived at 9, like, 0205, we were in front of the Jules Verne restaurant, which is on the ground floor. And we were setting things up and getting all the equipment. And we we put together a strategy of how to capture the the vibrations in the iron from the very bottom to the very top mm, wow. in one fell swoop. And it was pretty, a pretty um, interesting strategy to be able to do it just from the ground level. But we came up with a, this idea of doing it. And here was Seth. Oh, by the way, I had a team of seven people and... What I did was I gave everybody a copy of the authorization to be there, just in case we got separated, in case any kind of emergency came up. So here is Seth, you know, going about and duct taping <laughs> the wires and the microphones onto the, onto the iron, and you hear a voice from below going, Monsieur, uh -oh. Monsieur, arrête maintenant, arrête. <laughs> Which means, in French, stop. stop. <laughs> and he looks down, and there's this guy, this security guy, with a semi-automatic strapped across his chest. <laughs> but he also has a cup of coffee in his hand. <laughs> and Seth's thinking, oh, man, my French is really bad. How am I going to get out of this one? <laughs> he's doing exactly what he's not supposed to do. So what he does is he reaches into his pocket and he says, I have the papers. I have the papers. <laughs> and for the French, you know, having your papers in order is really important. <laughs> yes. Key element. Yeah. So so I saw this evolving. And fortunately, the manager who had escorted us to this location was, you know, not too far away. So I went bolting, I, I was going to say jogging, but I bolted away to get him to help explain the situation to the security guy. And what had happened was, is that they were at their morning meeting to discuss the day's work. And so he hadn't learned yet that this was an authorized event. Nothing nefarious, just, just recording elements. <laughs> so fortunately, we were let go. But Ever since then, Seth loved telling that story. <laughs> oh, that's a great one. I did look up, by the way, it's 324 meters tall. 324 so meters. Just, just over 1,000 wow. feet. Yeah, it's tall. So you've devised a way to capture from the bottom to the top uh, the sound inside the iron. Yes. Is that right? 
Yes. Well, what we heard were the sounds of the elevators as they go up and down the tower. And the elevators are attached on the outside of the legs of the iron of the Eiffel Tower. And they, they rattle as they go up and down because of all the different pieces of steel and the rivets and everything. It's always a constant, it's kind of like a constantly moving uh, structure. So they rattle, and of course we heard these, that sound. Strangely, we captured the sound of voices, and how it sounded was as if the iron was a filter, and it filtered the, it kind of filtered and muffled the voices through the material of iron, so it gave it a sort of metallic, ghostly voice quality. Finally, what was so interesting was it, since it was a September, uh, a rainy September day, we heard the sound of rain hitting the iron, mm. which I would not have expected because you think of the, it's a, iron is a very dense metal, and so I never think of it as being that porous in its ability to transfer sound, but it certainly, the sound of uh, light rain was, was really quite wonderful. That sounds rather magical, actually. Yeah. That's amazing. So you've collected all of the sound from the Eiffel Tower. What's the process of synthesizing all of this material into something that communicates a message to a, a listener? Well, yes, indeed. That was the question at hand because we ended up with all this material from the top of the Eiffel Tower to the actual basement and the machinery in the basement. Uh, which was so extremely compelling. And you have this whole acoustic picture that's being painted. But the question at hand was, yes, what what do you do with all this material? What I ended up doing uh, with it was two things. I made a, a number of YouTube videos, three or four YouTube videos. And I also created a CD called Under Voices, and that was done in collaboration with Seth and his best friend, Lance Massey, who is the creator of the T-Mobile ringtone. We uh, put our heads together and produced the CD. And it was certainly challenging, but exciting at the same time to, to think about how to organize all this material and to communicate the presence of the Eiffel Tower, and g going back a couple of steps, which is what I realized was in, in capturing the sound through the iron, that was the voice of the Eiffel Tower. So the idea of communicating what the voice is became my interest. So that's what we did. That's really fascinating. You've done many other fascinating projects 
and had a long affiliation with NASA. And I would love to hear about uh, more about a project that's very also very interesting called Cassini's Dream um, that's re- related to the exploration of our solar system and the exploration of space and specifically the exploration of Saturn. What is Cassini's Dream? Cassini's Dreams is the result of a process that evolved very much like the Eiffel Tower. Seth was invited to do a project at the Ames Research Center in Menlo Park, and this is one of NASA's research centers. And by that time, he had gravitated from focusing on neuroscience to space science, strangely enough. So he was excited to do this research project with uh, NASA, and I was fortunate enough fortunate to be able to go along. So there we were at the research center, and he was researching this device, which is called the vertical gun. Now, the vertical gun is this massive, massive gun that shoots into a chamber at, I think it was Mach 15. And this gun is 20, I think it's 28 feet long. That's the barrel. The barrel is 28 feet long, if I'm right. I could be wrong but it's really long (laughs) and it shoots into this chamber at different degrees. And the idea is to study the results of meteorite crater impacts on earth and what we should anticipate if one would hit. Wow. And I was, I was just, I felt like the fly on the wall, right? (laughs) I have very little background in science, much less meteorite impact science. Yeah. And much less on this level. So I just watched. And I looked at all this and looked at all this equipment and what they were doing. And everybody was extremely tense because everything, you know, this, this is a specialized scenario where you only get one or two or three shots and you're done. And, and it costs so much to get to that, just to that point. So tension was in the air. Mm. And as the day evolved, I just, happened to blurt out to the PI who was overseeing the project. And I said, gee, I wonder what it sounds like. And he said to me, in the 50 years that this facility has been in existence, nobody has been interested in investigating its sound. Fascinating. The same question you asked when you were standing on the left bank looking at the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) I guess so. And that began my relationship with them because... They wanted to do that. They wanted to start investigating sound. So that panned out into a couple of different projects that I did with NASA. And fast forward to Cassini's Dreams. Cassini's Dreams was based on, at the time, Cassini, the spacecraft Cassini, was researching Saturn. It was on a 13-year investigation of Saturn. And it was our first time to get to know uh, the planet And from all the data it sent, I saw that there was one particular image that was interesting to me, Mm. which is what's considered the North Pole of Saturn looking straight down onto the planet. You see a big round sphere of the planet, and then it's, it's literally surrounded by all the rings. You see everything as a complete unit from the very top viewpoint. So I looked at that, and I... 
in my mind, it looked like an LP, which is a long playing album for the people that don't know what an LP is. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) For all the millennials in the audience. With an LP, you have the center core, which is the paper bit that describes what's on the album. And then you have light and dark tracks. And the darker tracks are the breaks between the music when you play it. In my mind, it became a musical experience. And then, of course, my brain went to, gee, I wonder if there are sounds up there. So that became a proposal to NASA, and they granted me a research grant to find out indeed if there were sounds hidden in Saturn's rings. And yes, there are. Yes. (laughs) Seth and I worked together to find that, and we were able to identify a lot of different types of sounds. There are basically events that occur, and you can imagine in space, there amazing number of events that we know happen, but because they're so far away, we certainly can't hear them. And we don't, fortunately, don't experience them. But we were able to convert the those events into sonic events and to discover a few of which, what is probably a multitude, many multitudes of events that occur all the time. Wow. It's fascinating to think about sound as a big part of space exploration. It should be, yes, but it's just become, only recently become an interest for NASA in terms of space exploration. Only with perseverance did they decide to actually put a microphone in the spacecraft. Up until then, because we're visual creatures, we do not think of sound. So nobody had thought about sound until perseverance. So it's a, it's a new thing, but it's energy that's always there. And that's the other aspect of sound that's so fascinating for me is that it's a primary component of our world. Well, you, you see what you started with NASA, your question of, I wonder what it sounds like. You just started a transition there that I would love to follow a little bit and just hear a little bit about how all of this exploration has impacted the way you listen in everyday life. Because your context for listening is larger than most of us. The questions you're asking when you look at a piece of architectural beauty, I wonder what it sounds like. And how has that exploration informed or impacted how you listen in everyday life? As I look back through my projects, I realize that I'm always listening for the unheard. And that to me struck me as extremely odd, right? love it. And yet that is exactly what has evolved in my life is looking f- looking for that which we can't identify easily. But but the more I think about it the more I realize that listening is as Seth put it is a skill and it's something that we do not engage in. Mm-hmm. Uh, very thoughtfully. Because Our ears are tuned to listening all the time, 24-7. And so it's like having the radio on all the time. So we filter out, you know, the background noises, and we don't pay attention to much of what goes on. And if our partner is too repetitive, then, you know, they go into the, you know, I don't don't quite hear that, maybe later, honey. (laughs) (laughs) So attentive listening is something that we do not 
normally engage in. But it's something that I think it's going from the cosmic scale to the human scale. It's it's still about sound and it's still about paying attention. And whether we're paying attention to events that are occurring that we've never heard before or to paying attention in a new way to your partner as they speak and express something that you've heard a million times, but maybe you didn't pay attention because because you've heard it a million times. But if you listen more attentively, there's always the chance to be able to discover something a little bit new about either people you know or certainly people that you've never met before. And that kind of listening, I think, is is more and more critical to our lives and our society because it's important to learn to listen more attentively because that enables us to not only learn about each other, but to be compassionate to what the other person is expressing. It's just, it's not just the words, of course, it's the emotion that goes behind it. Mm. And I'm, of course, hoping that that will enable us to get, as a society, get along better. You just beautifully encapsulated really one of the main reasons we're doing this podcast is to create more listening in the world. And thank you for saying that so wonderfully. I would love to talk a little more about Dr. Horowitz, if we could. He has a, wrote a fascinating book called The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. And it's a terrific read. And as I mentioned earlier, it's it's very complex. He's a great storyteller. Although there's a lot of, there's some technical information, it's just being given in such a narrative way that's really wonderful to read. Could you tell us a little bit more about Seth and his work? When I met him, his work was engaged with bats and his favorite bat, Melanie. He loved Melanie. He, he carried Melanie around in the lab in his pocket in his lab coat pocket with him to keep him company and to chat with Melanie as he went through his day and now uh, the reason why he was studying bats is because this particular facility focused on echolocation which is the way bats communicate so he was able to contribute also by designing these electronic components that help with helped with the research but being the multidisciplined and multi-interested person he was, he was not limited to the mechanics of, of bat hearing. He was really broad in his way of thinking, and, he w- and that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why we got along so well, because we could have conversations about other aspects of listening and how it impacted the brain and I would be talking to him about art applications and feng shui, and he would roll his eyes at me and say, yeah, but that's not science. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yes, it is. There's physics behind this. (laughs) Yes, that's right. We bonded on, on the interest in sound and how it operates in the world. And so his work enabled my work to move forward in in ways that I did not anticipate by studying the science behind behind sound from the biological vantage point. We ended up doing these projects together. So that's how it, it in the end, how we ended up influencing each other. He wasn't he was intimately involved in everything I did and I was intimately involved in everything he did. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, there's some wonderful photos on your website talking about specifically the Eiffel Tower project, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, some some photos of of you, the two of you, working on that project together. Do you have a favorite memory of him? Oh no, there's so many. I can't choose one. <laughs> you know, he was so special. That's a good thing. He was unique. He was innovative. He was hilarious. He was brilliant. He was multifaceted. You know, you can tell I'm still in love with him. So, (laughs) but I mean, that's truth. It's truthful. You know, anybody who has met him understands his, his broad ranging intelligence. He started doing 3D printing when the 3D printers first came out and he built his own 3D printer and evolved into printing Mars terrains, for example from NASA data. So, geez, he was kind of, I guess he was bored and needed another hobby. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just, some, just something casual. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. It's it just <laughs> something very casual. This great enthusiasm for not only life, but for engaging his intelligence and engaging big questions about how things function in our world were some of the hallmarks of his personality. We're on a roll, China. Oh, good. In your mind, what role does listening play in the creative process? Whether that's in any genre, any medium, what's the importance of listening in the creative process? Hearing often operates in a, in a support role to our vision. It tells us in advance, for example, that something is coming down the road if you don't see it. Or my other example was that, like, the rumble of snow of an avalanche. That's a good one. You know, you can feel it in your bones. You can hear it, but you can't see it yet. Mm. It tells us about the baby in the room that needs to be fed in the next room over as he or she is crying. It informs us about our world in ways that we take for granted, as I had mentioned before. It supports our vision in ways that makes these two senses work together in ways that we can't imagine operating without. So in in the creative process, I think of it as the same way. It informs us about things in a supporting role and helps direct our vision. It's a fascinating thing to think about. I, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about that in regards to opera, for example, right? Where these things are hand in hand, these two senses. But without listening, without hearing the music, without listening and playing off something you said earlier about the, the emotion behind it, that it's not just words. And even when we're listening in an interpersonal conversation, that perhaps this is the difference between hearing and listening, you might be hearing something, but to listen, as you said, requires a commitment to engagement with it. If there were one practice you would invite the listener to try that could deepen the way that they listen, what would that be? There is a practice called deep listening, which is a practice that encourages people to engage in their lives through their ears. If you attentively listen, say, give yourself a period of time for an hour to go for a sound walk and just walk through the woods, walk through your neighborhood, walk around the corner, 
you will discover that your pace slows down, your ears perk up, and your eyes all of a sudden become less engaged in the visuals that are going on and more attentive to what is that little distant ping that you hear. This process, if you do it over and over and over again, makes you en enables you to tune your ears to your world and hopefully enables you to tune your ears to each other as people are having conversations with you and you are hopefully not responding to the pings of your Twitter feed or your Instagram account <laughs> and being pulled into a new direction. Deep listening is, is about being present in the moment with your ears on. I would love to talk a little bit more about something you said earlier that was really beautiful. And that was, I'm always listening for the unheard. I wonder if you have ideas about how someone can apply that idea to their lives to generate more compassion or curiosity or just to, to deepen the way they listen. That particular approach is very difficult to grasp onto, I suspect. And so what I was thinking of from my viewpoint is that um, for me, as a woman and as an half-Asian woman, a large portion of my life has been marked by not being heard. And women talk about this, have talked about this for generations, or maybe yelled about it. <laughs> More yes. often yelled about it. And why aren't you paying attention and that sort of thing. Or in my experience, just uh, simple things, my desires, my daily desires are not heard, are not responded to, not considered, not so much of my life has been marked by that, that most people would just fold up and go, oh, well, that's life. And for some reason, uh, for me, it's been totally unacceptable. So I suspect that kind of experience has been a central underpinning to this idea of listening for the unheard. And I think you can translate it to listening for the unexpected. Uh, when you hear something that's new, that's fresh, instead of discounting it, making room to consider it engages in compassion. Beautifully said. I I'm just relating really deeply to what you said about listening for the unheard, that that itself is an act of compassion and an act of generosity. And I'll tell you, this is one of the reasons that I really began this exploration was even seeing myself as a conductor. I'm, I'm, I'm a professional listener, right? The best conductors are the best listeners. And that's the primary part, one of the primary parts of the job. And if you don't get that part right, none of the rest really matter. But it's so easy for me in other situations or environments to not listen generously and to not engage in listening in a way that really makes the other person feel heard. I find that hard sometimes to do. But it's the hard work that I think our society desperately needs. If you can stop at it is hard, I think the question next should be, 
why is it so hard? My suspicion is that because we're easy to jump to judgment. And if we stopped before we jumped to judgment, right, that changes the whole story. That lets the other person in. It doesn't necessarily mean that change occurs or occurs immediately. But once that thought is allowed to sink into your brain, oh my God, you can't unthink it, right? And so then you have to make room for it. Then you have, to, you have to work on it. And this is where the hard work is, you know. We're in, we're, we don't like to work on things like that. <laughs> it reminds me of that Stephen Covey quote, most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. Perfect. Yep. Yes. Yes. And we are always planning. It has been recently discovered in this neuroscience world that we are preparing our responses as the question is being asked. So it's a biological thing that's occurring. But if you jump to conclusions in the process, then you sort of miss the point. It's a matter of modulating and controlling in which way the response is designed. I'll out myself and say that I think oftentimes I'm planning my reply even before the question is asked. <laughs> well, sure, sure. Because you want to be engaged and you want to be, you know, seen of as, you know, a really a thoughtful person. And, you know, there's all these, all these aspects of our personalities that are involved in, in the process. And so, yeah, for sure. What would the world look like with more listening? A more thoughtful world, hopefully a more peaceful world. You know, can we, can we have peace in our world if we listen more closely to what others want, whether it's globally or interpersonally? I think it's all about the same. China, thanks so much for having this conversation with me today. I've really enjoyed it and just deeply appreciative of not only hearing about your work, but about your willingness to be vulnerable in this conversation and telling us more about Dr. Horowitz, but also, you, you know, deep personal experiences from, from your life and very grateful. Thank you. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time. And I, I really enjoyed the thoughtful questions that you posed. Rarely does an artist have that opportunity to be able to discuss their work in this way. And I, I truly am valuing it. So thank you in response. My pleasure. This has been a conversation with artist China Blue. I encourage you to go to her website to learn more about her. That's at chinablueart.com. There's a lot of fascinating stuff there. You can also visit our show notes to find other information. China, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose, hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you are enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and are finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave a rating and a review. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com to sign up for an email list that includes special episode highlights show notes, and more information about our guests. To find out more about me, please visit timothymyers.com 
or find me on Facebook at Timothy Myers Conductor or Instagram at Mo T. Myers. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter for EQV Media and yours truly for Extra Musical. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose.